the 10th. 5-4 Red Sox. Ray Knight at first. Kevin Mitchell at third. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run. And Ray Knight is at second base. 3-2 to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first. Behind the bat. The most expensive noise, a podcast featuring mostly true adventures in the world of opera, with your host, Adam Flowers, and now, the orchestra tunes. The tenor tries in vain to put on his pants. The lights dim. And the curtain raises on. Episode 3. Ruin, disaster, shame. It's a terrific race, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. Andy Frame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass of the humanity. La prima scena. Failure is just an opera tuniti. What's the most catastrophe-strewn company debut on record? That dubious distinction may well belong to tenor Jerry Hadley, who on September 14, 1979, made his New York City opera debut as Arturo in Lucia di Lammermoor on less than a week's notice without any stage rehearsal. In an interview presented by the Metropolitan Opera Guild's Education Department, Hadley's story of his star-crossed first night was such a hit that Opera News thought it bore repeating here in their February 8th, 1997 issue. I vividly remember my City Opera debut. As my friends will tell you, I believe that any story worth telling is worth embellishing and improving with each passing year. However, in this instance, as Joe Friday used to say on Dragnet, I will tell you just the facts. The night of my debut rolled around, I hadn't really had a proper rehearsal, but by this time I'd developed a mantra. I would go home at night and chant, I am a professional singer, I know my part, everything will be fine. I am a professional singer, I know my part, everything will be fine. When I showed up at the theater, it occurred to me that all I knew about the set was the tape marks. So I went up and found the stage manager. Uh, Do you think it's going to be possible for me to walk on this set before I go on to sing? He said... Oh yes, no problem. You're in the second scene of Act 2. The curtain will come down, we'll change the scene, and before everybody else walks on stage, I'll send for you. You can give it all a look. I said, okay, thank you, thank you, that's great, okay. Sure enough, when the time came, they changed the set. I said, now? And he said, now! I walked on stage, looked things over, and was out there for maybe five seconds when about 80 people charged on stage whom I'd never seen before, in costume. I sort of froze, because I was definitely not in Kansas anymore, and then, thank God, Robert Hale, Raimondo, had the presence of mind to say, 
Hey, get up here. The curtain is going up. So I ran up the stairs and got to the platform just as we heard, da-dum, da-dum, dum, da-dum, da-dum. I looked out into that vast sea of humanity and there was Beverly Sills sitting up in the general director's box. She gave me kind of a thumbs up wave as I was standing there and that was that. The first thing I had to do was sing my little aria to Enrico, per poco fra le tenebre, right? And I realized I had no earthly idea which one of those people was Richard Fredericks, who was Enrico. So I turned to Bob Hale and whispered, where is he? He said, right over there, the blonde. Well, Richard's not blonde in real life, but I found him, sang my aria, got the high note and thought, huh, that's not so hard. Well, God heard that and he set out to prove I was mortal, because the next thing that had to happen was a cross to stage left for Fredericks and me. We were supposed to be talking about the impending marriage. So there was a chair, and I had a goblet in one hand and my other hand on the scabbard, and I sat down and tried to look real macho. Somehow the scabbard got itself lodged in the rungs of the chair, and I didn't realize it. So I sat there, singing Menotto, si, Menotto. He got up and walked across the stage, and I followed him, dragging my chair with me. Even to the novice audience member, that looked wrong. So a couple of the supers came over and very nicely took the chair off the sword, and I didn't know what made me do this, but I glanced up to see how the boss was taking all this. And I couldn't see Beverly anymore. What I could see was this shock of red hair leaning on the front rail of the box. She was laughing so hard she couldn't sit up. By now, I felt like Jim Ignatowski in Taxi. I was in a different zone from the rest of the world. Then these three supers approached me and one of them said, I swear this is a direct quote. Come with us. We're your friends. They took me up to sign the marriage contract, which I did. And by now I was in a position to see Lucia come down the stairs. I stood up and tried to regain my composure. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, my head was grabbed from behind. It absolutely snapped back. I turned around, and there was one of these guys who had just told me that he was my friend. I said, what are you doing? He said, don't worry, it's out. I said, what? He answered, the fire. The plume on my hat had gotten too close to the candelabra and had caught fire. And I was the only one in state theater who didn't know it. So now I see Lucia coming down the stairs, my bride. Do you realize how short this scene is? Normally, the Arturo scene goes like a snap. Well, for me, that night, it was like Goethe Demerung. Here was Lucia coming down the stairs, Gianna Rolandi, laughing so hard there were tears streaming down her face and her teeth were gritted. She was trying so hard to keep it together. I was supposed to walk over to her and bow very gallantly. I got over and she hissed, Don't make me laugh. Now I was supposed to bow to her and doff my hat. Because I was wearing a wig and because the hat had been pinned onto the back of my head in such a way that I had no peripheral sense of where it was, I didn't know that when they put out the fire, they had pulled on my wig so hard that the hat had fallen off. Again, I was the only person in the state theater who was not aware of this. So I bowed as instructed and reached for a non-existent hat. Where's my hat? No hat. 
So instead, I substituted something Veronica Lake might have done. I sort of flipped my long hair at her. Edgardo came on and I thought, great, now they'll watch him. When it was time for the sextet, I got as far downstage as I could thinking, I'm gonna sing really loud now. I'm not going to let this opportunity pass me by. This is a pointless strategy when you're singing the inner voice in the ensemble. But everything seemed to work out fine. We were almost done. When the music was drawing to an end and the last note had been sung, I was supposed to draw my sword and turn up stage threateningly towards Edgardo as he exited. Well, I was standing in the wrong place, and I didn't know that four guys, <laughs> my friends from earlier, near me were also going to draw their swords as they turned up stage en masse. I wasn't prepared to move out of their way, so according to my wife, who was sitting in the second row, the last thing people saw as the music cut off and the curtain began to come in was that I drew my sword, turned up stage, just as my friends did with their swords drawn, and got at least two of their swords right where it hurts. And I jumped. I left the stage, straight up in the air, as the curtain came down. After the curtain hit the floor, there was a long pause backstage, maybe a second of silence, I guess, but it felt like an eternity. Everybody looked at me and then dissolved in laughter. Everybody chortling, that was really funny, welcome to the company, man. So I went back to my dressing room thinking the worst. Well, I've sung at the City Opera once, that's better than nothing. Then Beverly came backstage. When she knocked at my door, I could see she was prepared to put a good face on the whole thing to cheer me up. You know, singer to singer. Well, she took one look at me and went, <laughs> Don't worry, we'll talk, we'll talk. That was my debut. I actually got good notices. After that, everything else was a piece of cake. That really did happen. And I only embellished it in one spot. I swear. By F. Paul Driscoll, a freelance writer and stage director based in New York, writing for Opera News. A brief note, I was lucky enough to meet Jerry Hadley in the late 90s through a friend of mine, a woman named Leah Fry. Leah was the diction coach for French and German at Opera San Jose. She passed away last year, and it's this story's kind of bittersweet because I, I only spent about an hour with her and uh, Mr. Hadley. It was really nice, and we didn't talk about opera at all. We spent most of the hour talking about it's a mad, 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 mad world and slapstick comedy. He was a very nice guy, very generous with his time. He didn't put on any airs for me. He just was genuine. And after asking me about my studies and my training, we just started talking about funny, goofy stuff. And if it hadn't been for my good friend, Leah, who made the effort of introducing me to him, I never would have met this really incredible artist. He, he was an amazing tenor who sang more or less the kind of stuff that I try to sing. And so I frequently will refer to his recordings as templates. And sadly, his life 
just didn't really work out for whatever reason the way it was supposed to and and came to a tragic end. But I don't know, this reliving this story, which I'd read, I think, when it first came out in Opera News in 97, it just made me think about that day when I got to meet him, and it made me think of his legacy, and it also made me think of the legacy of my really good friend, Leia Fry, who is missed. La seconda scena, Snatching Victory from the Jazz of the Wolf. Hello, uh, this is Robert McPherson. <laughs> Rob McTenner, man. What can I say about this guy? In addition to the fact that he is one of a handful of genuinely leggero tenors who can sing dramatic Rossini, comedic Rossini, any kind of freaky high tenor role you can imagine, he's not limited to those roles, but he's definitely a specialist that is called when that is needed, because a lot of us can sing Rodolfo, but not <laughs> most of us can't sing the kind of amazing stuff that Rob can sing. And he's, in addition to that, he's a good friend of mine. I met him in 97. He was starting his artist in residency at Opera San Jose. I was appearing in my very first opera. We were doing Carlisle Floyd's Of Mice and Men. He was Curly. I was Carlson, the guy that shoots the dog. And from the moment I met him, I loved him. Full of energy and that X factor where when he's on stage, you have to watch and it's not just because of his magnetism, but he's also a really, really gifted actor. Cut his teeth singing in church and musical theater, and opera was a logical extension of that. He's singing all over the world now. He recorded this fun little story in London, where he's now appearing in ENO's already acclaimed production of Pearl Fishers. The guy sung all over the place, everywhere. Every conceivable house uh, you can think of, he's done it all kinds of amazing roles. He's got this amazing, bright, clarion, liquid, flexible voice that has just gotten better since I've met him, which is, God, almost 20 years ago. That's, ooh, that is disturbing. But Rob is a great guy and a really good performer, and he had a little something to say about the perils and dangers of impending operatic doom. So we're going to have story time. I think I need to have some scotch. Okay. So I was thinking about this this morning and I was reminded of my very first time working in Europe. I got a call on a Thursday from my manager asking me if I could sing Rodrigo in La Donna del Lago because they had lost their tenor in Avignon, France. Now, if you don't know La Donna del Lago, you can't be faulted because very few people actually do know that opera. Uh, including me at the time. They had gone through a list of, of tenors who had sung the role, and when they had struck out with all of them, they found me. Um, I was scheduled to cover it, not actually sing it, but cover it, for Opera Orchestra of New York a handful of months later. So at this point, I could maybe hum through parts of the score. So when my manager asked me, can you go to France and sing? I said, no, no, absolutely not. So I go to the gym and I'm working out and I get this feeling of panic that I've just made a horrible mistake. So I get on my phone and, and I, uh, I compose an email back to my manager saying, okay, look, now if they can find somebody in Europe who has sung this before, they should go with that person. But if they're really stuck, I will go. I get a phone call a half hour later telling me that my flight is all arranged and that 
they're going to be waiting for me. So, Friday morning, I leave from Seattle and fly to Avignon, France. I get there Saturday afternoon, and I am just blurry-eyed and bloodshot. I'm at my hotel, and I'm ready to crash. And I get a phone call. And they tell me, the maestro would like to have a rehearsal with you. That was the last thing I wanted to hear. So, I go to this rehearsal, and as tired as I am, I, I have very little recollection of the rehearsal. I, I have like these mental pictures in my mind um, that blip in and out, but it's really fuzzy, the whole rehearsal. But it couldn't have gone in terribly well. Uh, because like the next day or two, I'd run into the maestro and he would look at me and he would just kind of shrug with that, well, I guess we'll see what happens sort of look, which is not inspiring confidence. So they had a tenor to sing the first performance, which was on a Sunday. So I went and I sat and listened. And he gets through the first aria, which is no easy task because, I mean, you have to go from a high C down to a low A flat over a two and a half, over a two octave leap. Not easy. But as he's getting into the second act, he starts shredding high notes. And you can feel the audience, which at first was just this really encouraging, like, yay, you've come in to save the show. And they start to turn, and you can feel the crowd getting ugly. <laughs> and they're like, you know, like, it's like, oh, that's not so good. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, oh, come on. You know, they, 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 you're just really becoming, you know, it wasn't a love fest at that point. This is the last memory in my head before I have to sing on Tuesday. Oh, so I get to the theater Tuesday. Now, because I literally was learning this on the plane, I had my CDs and my score on the flight cramming this opera into my brain. So they have a dancer to walk the part while I'm in a tuxedo on the wings with a stand singing. And you know, there's that moment before you step on stage and you're in your dressing room by yourself and you have this thought, this is important. You can't mess this up. You have to go out there and swing for the fences. Fortunately, as time zoned out as I was, I had a really, really good performance that night. And in fact, that was the start of my international career. Alberto Zedda, who was the conductor, became a huge champion of mine. I had many of my first performances in Europe were with him. And even to this day, we still work together. Uh, I just worked with him last fall in Armida in Ghent. So it was a very beneficial, at least for me, uh, relationship. But it was my first taste of what it was like to be in this crazy international world where you, you didn't always know what was going to happen. You're sometimes going to be in a strange land, in over your head, completely stressed out, and having to try to make art happen. But that's when I realized, if I could survive a debut as stressful as that, I got it. I can keep going at this. And many years later, here I am in London singing again. So... Cheers. La terza scena. Freeze. Put your hands where I can see them. Oh my. No!
No, God, please, no, 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 no! When we are not in front of the glow of the footlights, basking in the adulation of an adoring public after finishing a grueling, artful performance of some of the most challenging musical compositions that anyone can imagine. We still have to pay the bills, so we do other things. Sometimes we do temp jobs, sometimes we teach, sometimes we teach things other than music, sometimes we move furniture, sometimes we type as many words a minute as we can, and many of us, still eager to perform, but also eager to pay our rent, perform in a delightful, I'm being 50% serious and 50% facetious. A delightful thing known as the school show. Most performing arts organizations have educational outreach and most opera companies have what they call school outreach and performances, which usually include taking a beloved operatic work and converting it into a 30-minute version of that show that can be performed at school assemblies. The San Francisco Opera Guild has one such program that I participate in every year, and I love it. I'm not just saying that. I actually do love it. I, I love being around the kids and showing them that opera isn't some weird, bizarre, scary thing. It's fun and It's something that they can have access to. And while this is all well and good, sometimes these school performances can go, well, not exactly as planned. There is one such occurrence of art taking the wrong turn that is legendary amongst my circle of performing friends. Um, It is the tale of a well-meaning school performance gone horribly horribly wrong. And I think it is very fitting that one of the people at the center of that artistic nightmare is my best friend, Joe Myers. He goes by J. Raymond Myers in performance. He and I met as singing waiters at Max's Opera Cafe at the Stanford Shopping Center in Palo Alto in 1996, and I fell in love. But luckily we have Mr. J. Raymond Myers here to tell that infamous legendary story of (laughs) this school show from hell. So this story is from the mid-90s when all the shooting started, kind of, you know, people were afraid of... You know, guns in schools and, you know, kids getting shot up. It was kind of the start of that whole thing. So people were being very weary, wary about the whole business. And we were doing Carmen at a elementary school down in San Jose. And I told my friend Mike Tucci, who was the pianist, to meet me at the school. So he lived, you know, wherever he lived, and I lived in uh, Willow Glen at the time. And we drove and met at this school, and it was over in Campbell. And we got there, and 
I had him help me carry some of the stuff in, and what he carried in was this bag, a paper bag with a rifle sticking out of it. It's like a wooden rifle. There's no barrel on it, barely, you know. It just looked like a prop to anyone that would really look at it. But we went into this building, and I went and talked to the lady at the front desk, you know, like the secretary in the office, and after a few minutes of being confused, she finally realized what I was talking about with this opera show, and she said, oh, this is the... This is the, the school office. This is like the main office of the, you know, the whole district. This isn't the school. So the school you have to go to is, you know, about 10 blocks away. So I get back in the car. Mike's got the bag in his car. And as I'm pulling out of you know, just off the street. We parked on the street next to this this office. And I see a cop, and he, like, pulls behind us as we start to drive uh, towards the main street. And I didn't think anything of it at the time because I just thought he was doing whatever he was doing. Uh, so then we made a right on to the main drag, I think it was Hamilton. And also our friend Sally, who was a mezzo-soprano and friend of ours, was doing the show, and she was following us also, because I remember she met us at the school. Anyway, so we all made a right, kind of in caravan style, and then we immediately started to get into the left lane so we could turn on the next big intersection. So by this point, it's me following Mike, and Sally's behind us in her car. So we're getting to the intersection, and I'm, I'm lagging behind Mike a little bit, but then a cop, you know, a police car, gets behind him. And then there's another one, like, kind of to the right of him, I think. And then they all turned in the big intersection. We all turned, and then as we were turning and getting to, yeah, just about a block down to the right, all of a sudden there was like another cop car, and then Mike was getting pulled over. So we started pulling over, and then noticed there were like all these cop cars. Like, cop cars started coming in from everywhere, like from every angle, and everything stopped on the street everything was blocked off and there was like six cop cars and like three motorcycle cops and all these people start getting out of their cars and Mike is just in his car and we're just like going what the fuck is happening and I, I was sitting there by myself and Sally was back there so I knew she was freaking out too and then I'm like we, we didn't know what was going on we had no idea and then the cop has got Mike, you know, Mike's in his car. And I see him, like, just sitting there not knowing what to do because he, he just got, you know, he thinks he just got pulled over, right? But then he starts hearing this, you know, one of those things where the cop is, like, yelling at you, you know, and it's all really muffled. It's like, 
you know. Put your hand on the wheel. You know, just put your hand on the wheel where you can see them. And then Mike, I see him moving in the car, and he's like trying to figure out what to do because he can't really understand what the guy's saying. And put your hand on the car. You know, so he's like sitting there and like, what? And the, I'm like, he hasn't realized what's going on yet. But so at one point he starts to put his right hand, maybe his left hand on the, you know, the handle to get out. And then the cop is all, no, put your right hand on the handle, put the right hand on the handle. They're all screaming. And, you know, I look over and there's all these guys with guns. There's like 10 cops there. And they all have their guns drawn, and they're pointed at, at Mike's car. So, I'm literally ready to have a heart attack. My heart is beating so fast, and I'm going like, holy fuck, what is happening? You know, they think he's somebody or something. So, Mike finally opens the door, and he looks, and there's like all these people pointing their rifles and revolvers at him. And somewhere in there, in that whole thing, it dawns on me that they think he has a real gun. And then I realize, oh my God, it's just a huge misunderstanding. So I, I think this might have been before he got out of the car, but anyway, I tried to get out of the car, you know, out of my side, and there's a cop on a motorcycle, like that's next to me, uh, off his motorcycle, and he's standing there with his gun. And I get out of the car and I'm like, um, excuse me, th there's been this misunderstanding. I think the thing, he's like, get in the car, sir, get in the car. You know, so I got back in the car, I'm freaking out. And then, you know, then the whole thing with Mike, he gets out of the car, turns around and all these guys are staring at him with his guns, with, with their guns pointed at him. He's just, you know, dumbstruck, you know, gobsmacked. It's like totally, you know, as you can imagine, completely befuddled by this whole thing. And so I look at the guy who's on my right. There's another cop walking, and I'm, I think I rolled down my window, and I said, hey, what, you know, this is a big mistake. The guy, you know, these are, these are, because I see on my own uh, seat next to me is like knife, wooden knives and things and whatever we've got for the show. And... Um, I said, the guy's a big mistake, and he's like, I th "We got it, we got it uh, situated, sir. We we know what's going on now. I think I think we're fine. Don't don't worry, you know, something like that." So I'm like, "Okay." So till so then they they have his hands up in the air, and then they cuff him. You know, they put him behind his back, and they cuff him, and they throw him in the car, in the back of the car, and then everything is secure. And uh, so we're just, you know, so glad he didn't get shot. So then, then, like, a few minutes later, they finally get let him out of the car, realizing the whole thing was just a big mistake. Which what happened was, I guess that day, some disgruntled parent had called the district office and threatened someone. So they were already on their, you know, already on guard for something to happen, or they were, you know, told that to be on the lookout or, or whatever it was, and then, Mar then Mike comes marching in there nonchalantly with a you know, grocery bag and a big gun sticking out of it, a big rifle. So somebody in there absolutely just lost their nut 
called the police, which is, you know, understandable in a way, whatever. So that's what happened. And then, so Mike gets out of the car and he comes over to me and I just give him a big hug and he's like got tears in his eyes. He's just completely a mess, you know, as anyone would be after all that. So the poor guy gets back in his car after all that. The cops start leaving. They all just take off. No, basically no apologies. No sorries, no really sorry, sir, we didn't mean uh, anything, you know, sorry we scared the shit out of you and all that stuff. And it was just like, it was like a SWAT team, you know, basically like a a bad movie going on. Uh, and, you know, for a, what, for a pianist in a car with, with a wooden gun, you know. So then we're like, okay, so we're all just freaked out and we decided to go to the school and do the show. So we go to the school, and uh, I think Dan Morris was the baritone, and he met us there. He didn't know anything had happened, and I think the school had heard already about something that happened. We got there, we did the show, went off without a hitch, and then Mike took off. You know, and he always takes off after shows, so it wasn't anything weird that he took off, but it was just kind of like, what is going on? We were all still freaked out the whole show. And Mike just, he played the show just like he would, just as professionally as he would. That was it. And we never heard anything from, from the police. We were all up in arms about it, pardon the pun. And we, you know, we thought we should get him to give us an apology or you know, some kind of thing or something, and it was just never, never happened. And um, so there it is, Carmen Opera Gun Story. This concludes the third episode of the Most Expensive Noise Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. I'd like to thank Robert McPherson and J. Raymond Myers for their contributions today. Your homework for next time is to listen to or watch a performance of Jerry Hadley as either Tamino or in his famous recording and movie of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. Thank you very much for joining us on this journey. We hope that you're able to turn your real-time failures into opportunities for magic, and we look forward to seeing you when we do this all over again next time at the opera. Dream, my friend, you wake up monthly because you're dreaming again. But next time I'm on the scene, do not try to distance, keep your mouth so suck a duck because I'm strictly business. Well, no, there's some problems here. Uh, I don't even know where to start. All right, this uh, check, what, what, no, what, no, what's no, no, this, this, look, 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 there's a little problem with the uh, look, this, this miniature bread. It's like I've been working with this now for about half an hour I can't figure out let's say I want a mm-hmm. bite right you got this you'd like bigger bread exactly I don't yeah. understand how you could it's like fold a... this though I mean, you could well fold no it. then it's half the size no not the bread 
It'll fold the meat. Yeah, but then it, then it breaks bread. up, it breaks well, no, apart no, 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 no. like you this. You put it on the bread like this, see? But then if then you keep folding it, it keeps breaking. Well, keep and then you'll, it, everything right? has to be folded. And yeah. then it's this. And I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this. Right. So then it's like this. Yeah. But this doesn't work because then it's all... Because it hangs out like that. <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right, A, exhibit, no, right. exhibit A, right. and then we move right. on to this. Look, look, who's in here? No one. And then in here, there's a little guy. Look, yeah. so it's, it's a complete catastrophe. No.